From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is the Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and I'm joined today by Dr. Carl Kopp. Dr. Kopp is a professor of instructional technology at Bloomsburg University in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania, who has written or co-authored six books on the convergence of learning and technology, including such best-selling titles as The Gamification of Learning and Instruction and The Gamification of Learning and Instruction Fieldbook, Ideas into Practice, also the title Play to Learn. He joins us today to discuss his newest title, which is called Microlearning, Short and Sweet, jointly authored with Robin DeFelice. Now, his better half in this venture was not able to join us, but Dr. Kopp, I want to thank you for visiting with us today. Welcome to The Learning Circle. Uh, thanks, Anthony. It's, it's great to be here. I'm very excited to talk about the book. Yeah, I'm thrilled to have you. You have been on this program before. A few years back, we spoke about theories for gamification, and it was a very interesting conversation. So I was excited to see you produce a book about micro-learning now. It's such a, a hot topic, and you know our industry. There's always a new buzzword, and there's a period of time we go through where people want to know is it a real thing or or just a buzzword? I think this is a real thing, although a lot of it consists in some tried and true principles, and that's what gives me confidence that it is a real thing. So let's just start there on that broad idea of micro-learning. Is it a thing, Dr. Cup? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Anthony. So the, the concept of micro-learning has been around for a long, long time. You know, we, we used to call it chunking or we called it a, a shareable object or, you know, uh, the least possible thing. I think um, a long time ago, someone from Cisco said, you know, the best learning happens, you know, right at the point of need and lasts, you know, uh, only a few moments and then you're done. And so all that has been captured in micro learning. And I think one of the things that really has caught on this time or, or given it legs, so to speak, is that before the technology wasn't always available to do micro learning at the point of need or at an immediate need or, or, or space. But now that we've got mobile devices, we've got almost ubiquitous internet access. We've got tools like apps that feed us information. The whole idea of micro learning now can be delivered literally to the palm of our hand wherever and whenever we need it. And I think to your point, that's really what's going to make microlearning stick and kind of not be a buzzword is the fact that um, we can now do it everywhere. We're more mobile than ever before. We're more engaged in the environment than ever before. Microlearning works in the flow of learning. It works in a lot of different contexts. So I think that's what's going to make microlearning really have legs. Yeah, it's, it seems like it was one of those ideas before its time, and, and exactly, technology has caught up with it, mm -hmm. uh, like many, many other things, you know, digital performance support systems and all, all these kinds of things, that similar ideas. We were waiting for the tech to make it a reality. Right. Definitely agree with that. So one of the things I love about the way you open the book is, like the industry, there's a lot of triangulation going on with sort of wrapping our collective minds about 
what microlearning is, you know, how do we, what is it? How do we apply it? So you offer up several suggested definitions. Could you take a stab at what is your favorite definition? How do you, if you're giving that elevator pitch to someone and defining it, how does that go? Sure. So we talk about really microlearning being an instructional unit that provides a short engagement in an activity intentionally designed to elicit a specific outcome from the participant. That's kind of like the academic you know, definition. But basically, it's an instructional unit. It's short. It's designed intentionally because you want something to happen as a result. And I think, um, you know, we kind of talked a little bit before, before, but we talked about, you know, some people are just chopping up an hour long course or webinar and calling it micro learning. And the, the problem with that in, in our definition is that's not really intentionally designed, right? It's intentionally designed to be an hour long webinar, seminar, whatever, Chopping it up into little pieces means that it may lose context, it may lose meaning, it may lose instructional value because you've you've chopped it into this you've chopped it into the small piece. The other thing that we did, which uh, Robin and I went back and forth on, and Robin, I, I give her credit for this, came up with the concept of a participant. And the reason why we she did that and, and we adopted it in the book is because Robin said, look. Sometimes somebody might go through an e-learning uh, module, like how to change a light bulb or how to um, change out the hard drive on a computer or something like that. And the goal is more performance support than learning. And she felt, and I agree with her, that if we leave out performance support from microlearning, we're leaving out a huge opportunity. Now, there's definitely pushback on that. Some people say, well, it's microlearning. It's not microperformance support, right? It's microlearning. It's not... Uh, performance. But ultimately, our argument is, why are we doing learning within an organization? Because we want somebody to perform at a certain level. We want them to do something. Maybe we want them to be in compliance. Maybe we want them to balance the books if they're an accountant or whatever. So we think that performance makes sense. So so we purposely chose participant because you know I can watch a, a quick YouTube video on how to change a showerhead. And in that moment, I'm learning and changing a showerhead. Two days later, if I had to change another showerhead, I'd have to go back to that microlearning, and we're saying that's okay. It doesn't have to, you know, with all the information and data and things that are thrown at us at a constant level nowadays, uh, having to remember and recall everything doesn't make sense. I think Einstein is credited with saying, I never remember anything I can look up. And that to us is, is part of microlearning. Yeah, I think there are some, uh, whether they're true or apocryphal of Einstein having to get the phone book to get his number and call home. Right. Yeah, he's been credited with, a. Uh, uh, well, it's funny, all these, this is a little bit of a tangent, but all of these uh, phrases that you hear attributed to people, then you do a little digging like, oh, well, they didn't really say that. <laughs> but the concept sticks. Yeah, they they meant exactly. The well, I, I think I think it did uh, inspire the Steve Jobs wardrobe, where you know uh, you don't have to think about what you're going to wear every right. day. It's just jeans and a mock turtleneck. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I love the idea of that. Now, I love your remarks a second ago about how you'll forget, you know, a couple of days later, how you changed that showerhead. And this speaks to a concept that is very important called the forgetting curve and how microlearning can be a strategy to combat that. I wonder if you could kind of give us the the theory and the rundown on how we apply it. Right. So um, 
yeah, the forgetting curve, uh, Ebenhauser forgetting curve. Um, and he was an interesting gen- gentleman who did experiments basically on himself and he would memorize, um, nonsensical information and then see how often he could recall that. And that was really interesting research because it's not, a, okay, we, we forget things over time. And in fact, his research has been um, duplicated time and time again. So it's literally like hundreds of years old in the study of the decay of human memory. And if you think about it, it's really kind of a smart thing because as uh, humans were trying to survive in the wild and everything, uh, remembering every little leaf or every little rock or every little sound that was overwhelming and you couldn't concentrate on what was right in front of you. So it's actually valuable in a lot of ways to forget things, but it also has its negative effect, which is in the modern day world at work and things like that, we need to constantly be recalling information. And so this forgetting curve means that after a certain amount of time, our memory starts to decay. Well, it was found out by researchers subsequently that if you do these things called boosters or enhancers, or there's lots of different names, basically, it's if you remind the person of that content, then it pulls back up the memory. And so there's almost like a curve where you're, you're, you're kind of losing, 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 losing. Then you get this booster and boom, your memory's back up. So providing people a little bit of information over time helps you not forget as quickly. It actually allows the information to stay top of mind more often. And the really interesting thing, I've looked at a lot of different research, and as I teach you know, at the graduate level, uh, one of the really interesting things is uh, the professors, <laughs> I did not always do this, but uh, as you know, but the professors that give pop quizzes were actually helping out students because it would help with that forgetting curve. It would remind you of that information. Most of the time, however, in, in you know college careers, we don't get that little boost of information. What we get is the midterm and the final, and you're cramming and cramming, and people do really well when they cram for those exams, but two weeks later, you don't remember anything on the exam. But if you give a little bit of information over time, You'll strengthen the the recall of that information, the ability to apply that information. So the actual use of microlearning to kind of extend the learning period over time is a really powerful tool for recalling and applying information. Yeah, it's called forced recall, right? Yeah. The pop quiz type mm-hmm. of phenomenon, right? What forms does that take? What does it look like in a microlearning context to do that, to trigger and reinforce that knowledge? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways that it can be done. And, and interestingly, one of the things that got me into microlearning, because everybody says, oh, Carl, you're the gamification person. What are you doing? You know, talking about microlearning. But um, you've been typecast. I, for, you're better for worse. You've been typecast, right? <laughs> yeah, been, yeah. Um, but um, hopefully it won't ruin my career like it did some actors. <laughs> but um, what actually got me interested in it is gamification is kind of like the motivational element. And then once you have the motivational element, you have to do that. You have to do the forced recall. You have to do the content. And the content wasn't always done as well as I thought it should be. So I'm like, you know, we really need some more... Uh, instruction on how to do this more effectively. Let's focus on that. So there's a couple different ways to do it. So one is, and a, a number of gamification platforms do this, is quizzing. 
So you'll learn a certain amount of information. And then at a certain point in time, maybe once a week, the information will be sent out to you as a quiz question. And you have to answer that quiz question. Well, it turns out that actually recalling information uh, is actually a great way to learn and and reinforce that information. So the quizzes are a really good way to help reinforce the learning that you've had and reinforce the knowledge and you're, you're working to recall that information. So quizzing can be a really good way to do that. But it also turns out that it doesn't actually have to be at that level of a quiz. Sometimes just a little textual context will help change behavior. So there's a really interesting study uh, that was done of men in India, 500 men, half had um, pre- were predisposed to type 2 diabetes, glucose intolerance, and half, half all of them were, but half were given um, an intervention that was a text message, and half were given traditional instruction on how to avoid eating sweets and how to exercise more, et cetera. So these people got two text messages a day, and a message like, um, take the stairs instead of the elevator, or don't eat potato chips while watching TV. And that's it. That they just got these two reminders of what they should be doing twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. And it reduced the incidences in that group of contracting type two diabetes by 36%. So just, um, wow. yeah, isn't that amazing? I mean, it's all behavioral disease or lots of it. So uh, I think I thought that was amazing. Um, so it was focused on specific behaviors that you need to do. So you can do something as simple as a text message. It can be a, a video message. It can be um, a reminder from someone. So there's lots of different ways. It doesn't have to be specifically a question or a text message, or, you know, I see a lot about, oh, micro learning is video. It's video based. Well, it doesn't have to be video based. That's just one way of delivering it. And, and Rob and I even talk about you know, posters hung up on the wall that remind you what you need to do. Job aids that can remind you of what to do, a very quick job aid. So it doesn't even have to be technology-based. It can be just a little reminder that forces you to recall that information and uh, work your mind around that information. And that helps solidify that information in your head and eventually helps you to apply it more effectively. Yeah, I love that idea of the posters because it gives the the idea that there can be kind of a campaign, something mm-hmm. that, you know, thinking outside of the box of the typical e-learning forms that things take. If the name of the game is just recall and spaced learning over time, you know, post, there might have been that training event, but those things that will be in the environment, let's say it's at a company where there is a an overall campaign to change a certain behavior or to introduce something or to transform something that could be so powerful. So I just love how there are all of the above options to do that. Yeah. I I always think we should, you know, us in the field of instructional design need to steal more and more from, uh, (laughs) from other fields, right? Marketing is a great field to steal from television production, movie production, you know, all, all that kind of stuff I think is really really uh, valuable for us to incorporate that into what we're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that whole idea because, you know, we learn a lot. I've I've been through the program at Bloomsburg and it's excellent, but 
like any endeavor, there's lifelong learning and to, you know, to get your 10,000 hours of mastery and in a changing world, there's so many wells that you can go to beyond the uh, instructional design proper, you know, uh, source, you know, body of right, knowledge. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, whether it's learning how to write better, more, be more engaging, there's so many pages we can steal, like you said, from marketing or, people who write screenplays, whatever it is that gains and sustains attention. And that's a very important part of microlearning. Now, in the book, you, and I'm reminded, you were just using the word behavior a lot. There are certain theories that are important and which argue for microlearning. What are those learning theories that argue for microlearning? Well, I think, uh, I think any good instruction is a combination of of a number of theories, and one of the things that I think was really interesting, and again, Robin kind of led the charge into this, is looking at domains of learning and how learning is supported in those different domains. So we talk a little bit about constructivism in the book. We talk, uh, we actually talk about behaviorism. We talk about um, connectivism. We talk about cognitivism. So we talk a lot about a lot about these theories and how they support the underlying use of microlearning. So, for instance, behavioralism, a lot of people say, well, and I, I strongly believe that the different theories of learning work with different types of learning. So, for example, behavioralism, you know, stimulus response works really well for things that we have to remember and, and recall, right? Constructivism, not so well. Constructivism works for areas where we need to solve problems or we need to put together information in a certain way. So I think those kind of explorations of the theories make sense for what you want to get out of your microlearning endeavor. So we spent a lot of time just, you know, we're not, don't read the book if you want to learn about learning theories in depth. Um, But if you want to touch on, oh, how does microlearning tap into this learning theory or how does it tap into this discipline? So for example, for the affective uh, discipline, we go down through a lot of times companies don't realize this or people don't really think about this, but you're, you want to invoke the affective domain. You want people to have a certain value of let's say quality or a value of safety. So we go through what are the different levels of the affective domain? What are the different levels of accepting different, uh, emotions or different values and people are like well is that really learning is people and and again we argue that yeah that that is because organizations actually spend a lot of time coming up with a vision statement and a value statement and they want their employees at least at work to adhere to that vision and those values and that becomes really kind of important so we spend a, a good bit of time going into uh, both learning theories and the different disciplines of learning, the, you know, as I said, the affective, the cognitive. And we even talk a little bit about the psychomotor. You know, how can you use micro learning to trigger things like changing a light bulb or changing a, a router or something like that? And all of that are important elements to help people perform. And I think the broader our understanding of learning theory and learning domains, the more specific we can make our instruction and our micro learning. And I'll go back to another, you know, alleged quote 
one of my favorites is uh, Pablo Picasso apparently said, or his credit was saying, actually, I don't think he actually said it, but his credit was saying, you know, learn the rules like a professional so that you can break them like an artist. And I think that's what we need in instructional design, learn about cognitive domain and the affective domains, et cetera. And then when you actually create the micro learning, you know, kind of bring those together and, you know, break the rules just enough or bend the rules just enough. So you've got like behavioral cognitive approach, which, you know, I'm sure a purist would not uh, agree with me at all. But, you know, I think you take those approaches and you put them together and that's how you get the learning outcomes that you're looking for. And we talk about that as, as the foundation in the book. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And it kind of ties to what we were saying earlier about going outside of the body of knowledge proper to other disciplines. Because in any endeavor, there are craft rules, right, mm -hmm. principles, yeah. and you have to learn those uh, in order to, you know, uh, quote unquote, break the rules later where you, you understand how things operate, but now there's something that you can do that uh, innovates it or extends whatever it might be. Uh, the field that I think of a lot of is uh, part of my background includes visual design and how there are many, many rules operating. It's not like fine art. There's a lot of uh, principles and rules and methods, whether it's a perfect example is if you're going to create a magazine, you want that discipline and structure and architecture of a grid, right? Can, mm -hmm. Where mm -hmm. you've, you don't want to violate the grid, but and this becomes a, a point of debate among designers about whether you can or cannot violate the grid. And sometimes people do for a certain effect. Mm -hmm. And and people would argue that that made it better. So yeah. same idea in, mm -hmm. in this realm, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I always think of, you know, I always think of Jackson Pollock, right? It looks like anybody could do that. You throw paint on canvas. But to understand the conventions and the rules and the time when he broke that, that was a big, big deal because he was rallying against all the realism. And so it's really kind of interesting to know, you know, what the kind of rules are and then make conscious decisions for effect to, to break them. And exactly like you said about the magazine. Exactly. Now, in the book, you talk about four categories of use cases for microlearning. I wonder if you can give us an idea of how it's best applied. I'm referring to the section where you speak about supplementing, et cetera. I wonder if you could take us through that. Yeah. So what we wanted to do when we talked about microlearning is we wanted to not talk about it as a monolithic thing. I think a lot of things in our field, you know, learning is one thing. Well, learning is not one thing, right? Learning to tie my shoe is a lot different than learning physics. So we wanted to spend some time talking about what are the nuances of microlearning. We actually developed um, actually six different use cases for microlearning. We wanted to say, well, what could they be? What could microlearning do? When could we use it? So one of the uh, places that we talk about using microlearning is as preparation. So you're going to go into a learning class or you're going to go take a virtual instructor-led session or something like that. What were some prep that you could do? Because we know that advanced organizers help us learn. We know they help us focus on certain things. So could you use microlearning as a preparation? And absolutely. So that was one use case that we've seen a lot of. The other, Another use case is primary. So we're going to teach you how to do something, and this is going to be the primary tool to do that. So 
one example of that is, uh, uh, you know, I'm trying to learn Portuguese very, very slowly. And so uh, I use Duolingo and that's how I'm learning to speak Portuguese. So that's my primary use. I spend maybe 10 minutes a day studying some vocabulary on uh, Duolingo. Uh, but it was very funny. I actually went to, it's Brazilian Portuguese. I went to Brazil and uh, I was talking to a woman through my broken Portuguese and she goes, you're learning on Duolingo, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) So there must be certain nuances of Duolingo that aren't quite, uh, that are very recognizable. Um, So another, that's funny. Yeah. I thought that was. I thought, by the way, not to, and not to get you off that no, track okay. you're on, but I think, and we can visit it later. But I think Duolingo is sometimes pointed up as an example of how micro learning can look like. Right. Yeah. 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 And it has a lot of. I think it has a lot of uh, uh, interesting elements of micro learning being effective. Although, um, you know, it's a good example. I don't know if it's a perfect example. I don't know if there's any perfect examples out there, but. Yeah, it's very, it's a very, I think it's a very good example of primary micro learning. So for example, I don't think that when I, I don't think I could be a fluent Portuguese speaker without at some point going to Brazil and conversing with people actually in Portuguese, correcting me, fixing the nuances and moving forward. Um, it's kind of like uh, when I was learning Spanish, I was, I was trying to learn Spanish. I was also doing a little Duolingo. And all of a sudden, uh, the gentleman that I was with was using these Spanish words in ways that Duolingo didn't talk about at all. And because of the slang and the colloquialisms and things like that. So I think um, it, it, it that's a really good example of how, how in some cases, deep learning you can't get all the way there with just a microlearning app. Right. I, and I know you make that point about there are things that microlearning is not or things that you caution people that microlearning is not for. Right. Yeah. Especially. And, and those things are really around deep, whether it's immersion in another language or immersion in a concept. You know, we talk about in the book how, you know, Sally Sollenberger didn't learn to fly and land the that jet on the Hudson through a series of microlearning modules, right? He had deep and rich knowledge of flying simulators, gliders, that kind of stuff. So if you want really deep, you know, you can do a little quick little course on negotiation skills, but if you really want to negotiate expertly and flawlessly, uh, you're going to need more than just some microlearning modules. So I think deep, deep learning and deep understanding doesn't, doesn't come from microlearning. Problem solving, I think, is a little bit more difficult from microlearning, um, although there are some microlearning tools that can help, is as we talk about the different use cases, one of them is actually called pensive microlearning, and that's microlearning that's designed to get a participant to reflect upon an idea or a concept. So maybe you're trying to outmaneuver your competitor. Well, this microlearning might be this little app that asks you certain questions, like what is your competitor doing in this area? And you would type in something like, oh, they're trying to be a low-cost provider. Then the app would take the term low-cost provider and says, you know, what is one of the cons of being a low-cost provider? And just trying to get you to think through the problem critically without giving you the answer. Because the system can't, you know, give you the answer, but it can, it can prompt you to think through the answer. So, for example, Noom is another example that people uh, hold up often as a good micro learning example. It's a weight loss or weight control product. 
app and um, they'll ask you psychological questions. Like, why do you think you overeat when you come home from work? Right. And so it's not telling you, oh, here's how not to overeat. It's just getting you to analyze what you're doing. So we call that pensive micro learning. Another type of micro learning, we talked about this before, is performance, right? Okay. I, I pull up a YouTube video on how to change a shower head or a light bulb or something like that. That's performance based. Also persuasive. So if you think about that example I gave of the gentlemen in India who were predisposed to type 2 diabetes, we're trying to persuade them to live a healthier lifestyle. So that's persuasive. If you're trying to persuade people to be safe, if you're trying to persuade them to have a culture where quality is really important to the organization, all of that can be persuasive micro-learning. And of course, we have post-instruction micro-learning, pull-through. This is used a lot in pharma um, and a lot of sales, actually. So you go to this big pharma meeting and everybody is talking about the concept of the new product and the new sales model and all that kind of stuff. But then they go back in the field and, and they're hit with the everyday realities. And so pull-through or post-instruction just reminds them, oh, here's the three things you should know about you know, selling this product. Oh, here's the four things you should know about how this product works and those kind of things. So that's post-instruction or pull-through. And then there's also one called practice-based. This is one of my favorite. There's an app called Presenter. So it's P-R-E, present, P-R-E-S-E-N-T, and then the lowercase r, like presenter. And it's a practice-based micro-learning in that it's helping you practice being a better presenter. So basically, you take this app out, uh, wherever you are in the grocery store or at home or or wherever, um, everywhere but in the car, and then uh, you speak into it. You speak your presentation or part of your presentation, and the app measures your volume, your pacing, and the number of ums or ahs, they call interrupter words, that you're using and give you feedback on that. So the app literally allows you to practice and gives you feedback on being a better presenter. So that's, uh, I think, a really good example of this practice-based micro-learning where the tools are such that they can actually allow you to practice on your own independently to learn uh, the skill set that you need to learn, which I think is kind of an interesting, that's fantastic. Yeah, kind of an interesting way of thinking about it. So those are the six categories. We don't think that they're, they're all inclusive in that someone will come up with another category we're sure of. And uh, they're also some, somewhat amoebic in that you might have a practice-based app that also leans toward being pensive, or you might have post-instruction that's persuasive. So, you know, it's kind of mix and match, but we really thought that and Duolingo uses a lot of those and also throws in gamification. But we wanted to at least allow people to think about the different use cases and not think of micro-learning as just one thing, but it's actually a nuanced approach. And we came up with that because a lot of clients and people are telling us, oh, well, we, we were told that you have to do micro-learning for this, or we thought micro-learning only works for this. And when I say, no, 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 it, it, it can be more expansive than you think. And here are some examples of, of how you can use it. 
Yeah, those are fantastic examples because uh, I think in understanding it, it really is helpful to see how it's applied mm-hmm. in all the different use cases. So appreciate that run through. Now, I've got to ask, we're doing a podcast right now, and this in terms of its format is longer form. It's not really designed as micro learning, but it has similarities in that it's the kind of thing that's informal learning, we might call it, or something that people can use in their spare time. I wonder, though, uh, how podcasting, if you're going to design podcasts as a format for microlearning, because you do mention it in the book, mm-hmm. what might that look like? How, how can a podcast be used? Yeah, so I think for I think podcasts are, are a great learning tool, and I think one of the reasons that podcasts work really well is they truly let you do two things at one time. So, for example, you could work out and listen to a podcast at the same time. You can drive safely and listen to a podcast at the same time. So I think podcasts are really powerful tools from that perspective. And there's a lot of examples of, and when I run through the examples, uh, people say, well, do they all have to be mobile apps? And the answer is absolutely not. You know, we talked about the posters before and we talked about job aids and things like that. Podcasts fit right into that. So what podcasts do is present information in a very, um, intimate one-on-one environment. And also what they allow to do versus video, they allow the learner to kind of put a picture of her or his concept of what the people are talking about. And we know from research that the more effort somebody puts into interpreting and understanding information, the better they're going to be able to recall it because they put that extra effort into it. So sometimes actually videos are counterproductive because they give you too much information. So a podcast is a really good tool for helping solidify information, for helping uh, provide instructions, painting pictures, and really give the individual a sense of what needs to be learned. And podcasts are something that people will do, I've noticed, over time more consistently than other types of uh, micro learning. Um, Maybe it's because of the entertainment value of a podcast, or maybe as I said before, it's because of the intimate nature of the podcast, kind of the one-on-one nature of it. Maybe it's because they are putting in their own kind of imagination to what's happening. So uh, a podcast can be used, I think, in a lot of different ways as a form of micro learning. A few thoughts come to mind. I'm thinking about how, in a capricious way, the the behavior of listening to a little bit, pausing, listening to a little bit later, uh, there there is an accidental chunking of the content just in the just in that very mechanical way of you know hearing it in dribs and drabs over time. Right, the way a user will consume it. Uh, Obviously, that's not the true definition or designed way to do it. Uh, more of like the short playlist type of thing resembles the way you might design micro learning, but still it's a way to consume that content in your leisure over time. And I love the point you make about how people think that audio is not a visual format. It is a visual format the yeah. same way books text is a visual format. It's very rich. We've become so immersed in worlds that have been built and we see them in our mind's eye. My first podcast that I produced was all about design principles. Mm -hmm. And I got by just by using the very familiar touchstones. I might not be able to show you a picture, but if I relate something to say uh, like a Coke bottle 
people know what that looks like, right? right. And everyone has these familiar things that uh, transmit images. So I think sometimes we underestimate various media, whether it is text or audio or the this or the other thing. And a big part of our creating learning is sizing up the right media for the right job. So mm-hmm. really like those points that you made. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think, uh, you know, there's a whole there's a whole area of study called desirable difficulty. And basically, the, the concept is that uh, things that you get easily in a classroom situation, uh, you're going to have trouble recalling them later on because you got them so easily. Things that you had a little bit of a struggle with and a little bit of difficulty understanding, you're actually going to be able to recall those much more easily later on because you had that struggle and you had that difficulty. And I think exactly to your point, I think print media and audio media require you to put more effort, more desirable difficulty into understanding the concept, putting that picture, you know, you're talking about design principles. I got to put that Coke bottle together with the grid format that you talked about in the magazine. Oh, that's kind of what it looks like. But I had to do that, you know, through your uh, uh, explaining, but I had to come up with the visualization. And so I think that's one of the things that exactly print media and audio media do really well that visual media, you know, is almost a dumbing down of information. Yeah, totally. I really think sometimes we underestimate learners in that sense. Mm -hmm. And we underestimate the media. I, I always find it a little tragic that we use the term page turner in a negative way in our industry. Yeah. When you pick up a paperback when, it's, when someone's <laughs> right. calling it a page turner. It means that someone is in the grip and thrall of text, just words on a page. And a lot of times we behave as if, oh, you know, the learning could have been better, but all we had was text to work <laughs> right. with. And it, but, but it really points up a shortcoming in our industry, not not the medium, right? Yep. Because text is always going to be the foundation of anything that we do. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. I wonder if we can go back once more to some of the theories. Uh, One of the ones that you talk about in the book is connectivism. Mm -hmm. And that one seems especially relevant to the idea of micro learning, the way we take sort of, we form our knowledge based on many elements. I just wonder if you could speak to that and if you agree that connectivism has special relevance here. Yeah. So if you think about connectivism, it's, it's kind of the, um, you know, an integration of a lot of different concepts. So uh, Stephen Downs kind of came up with the idea along with uh, George Siemens. And it's really, it, it came about as social media was starting to come of its own. And it really looks at technology and the desire to make connections for meaning and learning. And so I think what, what micro learning can do and kind of a micro learning ecosystem and I always say microlearning really, and Robin agrees, it really can't stand alone. Microlearning needs to be part of a larger learning system, even if it's, a, even a, you know, we gave those primary examples, but those are tied to kind of a larger learning need or a larger um, effort within an organization or even me. You know, I, I, I primarily am learning Portuguese with Duolingo, but I've got to go to Brazil to really kind of solidify my knowledge and connectivism kind of focuses on those connections, kind of the, the here and now. And, and it's really an idea of, you know, learning and knowledge rests with the diversity of opinions. So um, micro learning can get an idea or concept out there, 
that people can talk about that can they can discuss i worked with one organization and they had a they did micro learning where they were sending out um safety messages but as well they're a retail organization so they wanted to avoid shrinkage you know where inventory kind of disappears and they found that when they sent out messages or questions about shrinkage calls to their theft prevention hotline would go up when that, that happened, you know, so people were saying, you know, I've kind of seen it, I've kind of turned my back, but you know, the company's really, so you're kind of, um, you know, that's adversity of opinion. One guy thinks, yeah, it's okay to take this because the company owes me and everybody else is well, like, no, that's, that's really not right. We, we can't be doing that. So the idea is that learning resides in these nodes or connections among and between people. It reminds me a little bit of, um, there's a theory by Everett Rogers called diffusion of innovations. And one of the tenets of that theory is that innovations get spread through social systems by the strength of weak bonds. And the strength of weak bonds basically says that most of the time in a social system, like let's say a, a company or an organization, you are connected to people that are fairly like-minded because we're all working toward the same goal or we all kind of done things the same way. So you're not going to get new ideas from people that are kind of all focused on the same thing you're focused on. But if you have a bond uh, that's weak, like somebody you met maybe at a conference or somebody that you met at a professional meeting who is doing something completely different, they're going to talk to you about what they're doing. And that's how the idea enters into the social system, that's how an innovation gets spread. And connectivism is really about that. And you can use micro learning because let's say that I want to introduce a new concept into an organization and, you know, we do it with a lot of fanfare and, you know, that kind of stuff. And we have change management. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But if you're giving people ideas and concepts on a regular basis, you can slip those innovation innovative concepts into the micro learning rhythm and sequence and people can become accustomed to it and used to it and maybe even take one of those ideas and kind of run with it through the social system, the organization and kind of make that happen and make that their own. So that's kind of how we talk about connectivism being really part of the whole one way, uh, uh, micro learning being one way that ties to connectivism and connecting different ideas and really think about how you can learn from others through these diversity of opinions, through these connections, through the concept of nurturing and maintaining connections. Um, it's really kind of, I think, an interesting way of thinking about learning and development. That's really a very rich definition. It's very helpful. It sounds like uh, what we would call student-centered design, right? Yes, yeah. So there's a lot. So it's really interesting. There's a lot of focus now on the individual as the center. So there's a whole um, movement called human-centered design, which is where you think about journey maps and you think about empathy maps. And really what that's about is about putting the human at the center of a design problem and then designing around the person instead of, oh, here's some technology, here's how the technology works, now hopefully you can figure out how to use it. And it's also, if you think about a personal learning network, if you think about how uh, individuals now are responsible for learning and making connections and figuring out 
new information and new knowledge. So there really is a trend and a shift toward this using or placing the the learner at the center of all that's going on, including learning and building the ecosystem around how that person best learns. And one of the way, obviously, ecosystem. Did I say ecosystem? I meant ecosystem. Um, Although ecosystem might work, but anyway, so <laughs> the idea is that is that we're actually placing the the learner in the middle, and then micro learning is really good because we know the learners are busy. Why don't they consume small pieces of learning as they go on? Why don't we help them make these connections? You know, so it all kind of fits into this larger uh, gestalt. Yeah, yeah, I love that. There's that autonomy. There's the personal responsibility for learning. You know, the best learning is the lifelong learning that you do, Absolutely. that you continuously do to uh, supplement your career and and what a company or any institution can give you. But, you know, back to that podcast example, one of the things I do because I, you know, podcasts uh, agree with me as a format, mm-hmm. um, even in prep for this show, I listen to a number of shows, interviews out in the podcast ether about microlearning. Mm-hmm. Uh, those included some of your interviews and... And I was sort of wrapping my head around that. I got what I could from articles online, from your book, of course. But it just shows how an individual at the center and at the saddle of their own learning can just kind of take their own path. And, and, you know, it marries up to that concept of informal learning where rather than taking the bus with everybody else, you take your own bicycle and you can, you know, stop and smell the roses over here, or you can go over there all at your own whim and, and your own, you know, your own drive behind it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't think there's ever been a more exciting time to be, to have to learn something. I mean, all these resources, all these uh, tools, uh, and you don't, you know, the institutional walls have been torn down. You know, it used to be if I wanted to get, if I want to learn about instructional design, I had to enroll in a graduate program on instructional design, but no longer. Or we had to wait until a university came up with a program in micro What? no longer. So it's really kind of an exciting time. It really is. Now, I think those among us that are kind of want the proof of it are going to ask, a que- I'll ask the question for them. Uh-huh. Are there ways that we can measure microlearning to its effectiveness? Yeah. So the answer is definitely yes. Um, the best way to measure microlearning or really any kind of learning is to figure out what behavior you want to reinforce or change, measure that behavior before you do the intervention, and then measure the behavior after the intervention and check out the delta. So that's the best way to measure if you want to be truly experimental, have some of your employees um, take micro learning and some of your employees take regular instruction and then compare the difference and then kind of go from there, um, which is, is I say that almost tongue in cheek because most organizations won't do that. Um, although right. Facebook will do A-B testing on their users, so <laughs> they don't seem to have a qualm with it, but um other organizations, you know, they just want the benefit of the learning right away. I can say that there's been lots of studies on the effectiveness of uh, using micro learning for uh, recall and information. I, I think it's also important to not, so organizations have had uh, lots of success in peer reviewed publications uh, using micro learning for recall and for application. Other organizations have used it. 
and seen, you know, as I said, a, a reduction in things like retail uh, theft or shrinkage. They've seen an increase in safety. We've seen uh, results of better um, customer service and call centers. So there's a lot of of, of case studies and um, actually peer-reviewed articles out there. I, I would I would caution in a couple ways. One is that your organization might be a little bit different, so you're going to have to implement it and then implement it against a, a desired organizational outcome and measure it to make sure that it's doing what you want it to do. Uh, the other thing is that it has to be implemented correctly. So if you just say, yeah, chop, as I said before, you know, we'll chop this up. Hey, how come this micro learning isn't working? Uh, it worked for organization X and it just doesn't work for us. Um, so you have to have some thought and some design and development that actually goes into creating the micro learning. So I, I think that's important as well. And I think for learning, for any kind of learning intervention, the most important thing really is to look at what's happening within the organization, figure out what you want to change, and then measure whether or not that learning intervention has made the change. I think that's the best way to measure it. You can also do things like, you know, uh, I work with organizations and, and they do the quizzing that I had mentioned before. And they'll measure how many um, quiz questions you got right the first time. And then they'll, after so many days, refeed you that quiz question and then measure your change and how many you know, times you've answered that question correctly. So, so there are ways of adding in, you know, uh, questions, quiz questions to measure the knowledge acquisition as well. But what you really ultimately want to look at is change in behavior. And is that a positive change in behavior for the organization? Uh, and those are big things to measure. And I always think it's interesting. I, I talk to a lot of organizations and they say, yeah, we want proof that this training works. We want to measure. I'm like, okay, you need to do this, this, and this. And they're like, ah, uh, is there another way to measure it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What, by heights maybe? You know, I don't know. You know, so (laughs) uh, organizations talk about wanting to measure. And the other really interesting thing I think is fascinating is, you, you know, training got a really bad reputation for butts and seats, right? So, all we were measuring is how many yes. people were being trained. And so now we have this big, quote unquote, analytic revolution. And so everybody's doing analytics and checking this and checking this. But if you're not careful, your analytics are measuring butts and seats, right? How many times did somebody go through this? How many times did somebody answer this? How many times? Well, we don't want to know really how many times. What we want to know is what's the impact on the organization. And if your learning analytics aren't looking at organizational impact, then I'm not sure what you're doing with them. That's very, very helpful, that explanation of measurement. It leads naturally to what I wanted to ask you as the last question is, if you were to give advice to the organization that wants to start somewhere with microlearning, where might we begin? Yeah, that's a great great question. So I think the first place to look for is where you're seeing gaps in performance. If you are seeing a very defined performance problem, then microlearning, I think, is a really good tool for addressing that performance problem. Now, you have to look at, and we go through the book, like a a bunch of things to look at, but you also have to look at, you know, what uh, technology do they have at hand? You know, if they're out in the field and they don't have any technology, then probably microlearning is not good for them. Um, or if they're sitting at their desk all day, then a different type of learning might be better. But if they're a little bit mobile, there's a huge performance gap or problem that you're seeing, 
and uh, you think lack of knowledge or lack of specific skills, specific application of skills are the problem. I think micro learning is a good initial intervention. And we also also always say is you know do a pilot. I, it's so funny. I've been I've been doing you know, software technology for like 20, 30-ish years. And uh, when I first started, everybody's talking about, oh, here's this great thing. We should do these pilots of technology to see if it works or whatever. And then every so many years, the, the, the brand new groundbreaking concept of doing a pilot comes up again. Like, don't forget, do a pilot, yes. you know, <laughs> like, well, what do you mean? Uh, so people seem to forget that pilots are <laughs> really important even with human-centered design and agile development where we're you know doing it you know agiles where you just kind of throw something together at least what was it um minimal viable yeah, minimum product, viable product throw it out yeah. there and then see if it works but even then i've seen pilots you know make a difference or not make a difference you know if you don't run a pilot so i think that's important from a micro learning perspective and then um, make adjustments quickly that is so helpful. Dr. Kopp, you've been so generous with your time today. Uh, I want to remind listeners, the book is Microlearning Short and Sweet by Carl M. Kopp and Robin A. DeFelice. It's available at an Amazon near you, or uh, I think you can get this at Barnes & Noble, anywhere yeah, where uh, fine books are sold. So very excited for this. It's, it's just what we needed. Ironically, you did the book for microlearning, and I think that's what we needed because we needed a little deep learning on microlearning, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's a very helpful title. So what's up next? Are there other things in your wheelhouse that you can tell us about? Yeah, so uh, a couple of things. One is that I'm working on another LinkedIn learning course. So I think that brings my total up to 10. Wow. So uh, if, if any, yeah. And most the great thing is that most organizations have access to LinkedIn learning courses. Um, so uh, if you want to know about engaging learning or gamification or uh, learning design or starting a training department. I've got some courses on that, which is really kind of exciting. And I'm also working on, I, I do a lot of courses and uh, I travel a lot for workshops and things like that. And I've started to put some of those workshops into uh, an online format as well. And organizations are starting to say, Hey, this is great. You know, we can't afford to fly you out, you know, four times a year, but we can definitely afford to kind of do this kind of learning intervention. So that's, that's been good. And then, um, I just got back from a sabbatical, and so I'm at Bloomsburg University uh, after a year off. Uh, very energized and excited to uh, meet a new crop of graduate students. So if anybody's interested in earning a degree in instructional design and technology, uh, we'd love to have them at Bloomsburg. Well, I can vouch for that as a Bloomsburg student myself, and uh, you were my professor more than once, yeah. more than one class, and it's a great experience. That is not an official endorsement, but I, I'm just going to I'm going to vouch from personal experience. Great. Dr. Kopp, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Anthony. Again, micro learning short and sweet. Heartily recommend this to all our listeners. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.